cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, not just a little. You don't let it go a little and then pull it back. You hand them over and say, Father, help me this week to reassess, refocus, and then redirect when I cast all my anxieties on you. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning we are continuing our recent series of studies entitled Contagious Church as we turn this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, could you turn please to 1 Peter chapter 5 as we're reading together the first seven verses and you'll find it on page 1892, 1892 of the church Bible. The Apostle Peter is writing to a number of churches in Asia Minor, north, northwest Turkey as we would know it today. And as he comes to the closing chapter, he addresses the elders and leaders in those congregations. And so we're reading from 1 Peter 5 at verse 1. The Apostle writes these words, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Most of us from time to time on a Sunday morning will come to church because we have a busy week ahead and there are so many things going on that we are almost incapacitated by thinking of all that's coming our way in the week ahead. And if that's you this morning, come with me please into this passage of First Peter and be asking yourselves, Father, do you have a word for me this morning as I enter into this busy week? And that theme will run throughout in a slightly indirect manner this morning, our study. If you were with us over the last couple of weeks, you will know that we have been involved in a new series of studies called Contagious Church. And I deliberately left this series of studies for this fall season because over the last 18 months, we as a congregation have been asking some significant penetrating questions. We've been involved in a strategic plan 
And over those last 18 months, we have met multiple times in seminars and workshops. We've met as ad hoc groups. We have surveyed the congregation, and we've been asking questions that, in essence, amount to this. What is it that lies at the very heart of who we are as a church? What are our core values? What are the things that make us distinct and different? What are those things that we hold dear? Now, having asked those big questions, we've also been drilling down a little deeper, and we've asked some fairly significant practical questions at the same time. How are we to increase growth and maturity in our existing members? Growth and maturity. It's been a theme that's run through our time together. We've also asked how do we assimilate and encourage new members? We've gone a little deeper and we've asked how do we develop intergenerational connectedness between the 90-year-olds and the 9-year-olds? And how do we develop relational engagement at all levels as a congregation? So we've been digging deep and asking significant questions. First study, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at what is a contagious church? A place where people are feel it's a place of significance and value and meaning in their life. A place that is exciting to be. A place where people look forward to being on Sunday morning and throughout the week as well. Two weeks ago, we said that a contagious church at its very heart is a place of grace. A place of grace. A place of learning. And ultimately, at the end of that study, we said a contagious church is a place where people engage with the living God. Last Sunday morning, we looked at a contagious church as a worshipping church. And what does it mean to really engage Him in worship. And this morning, we'll come to 1 Peter chapter 5 and ask that, what does it look like to be a contagious church with contagious leadership? Leadership who are purposed, have a purpose, are focused and intentional in what they do. Leadership who take initiative and are courageous. And for all those reasons, we're coming to 1 Peter chapter 5. Some of you will be aware of First Peter. It's been several years, I think, back in 2010. We spent several Sundays in it, and if you have been with us on Wednesday evenings, we've been spending our time in First Peter over the last, uh, in fact, last semester leading up to the summer. As we come to it again this morning, I'm reminded of this, that Peter is writing in the year around 64, 65 A.D., He's writing to congregations spread across, as we said moments ago, in northern Turkey, Asia Minor, as we know it now. And the towns he's writing to are in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and you can go and visit them today. In fact, earlier in the summer, I corresponded with pastors in some of these churches. And I said, we as a Bible study group on a Wednesday night are looking at the letter of 1 Peter. Are you still there? And several of them wrote back and said, yes, we're still there. Pray for us. We're still here. Now, when we think of First Presbyterian, 167 years old, we think that's a long time. But can you imagine being a member in a church in Cappadocia? In fact, it was a Presbyterian congregation who have been there for 2,000 years. 
So they're still there and working away. And as we get into this passage, Peter writes in fairly clear, unambiguous terms to mums and dads. He writes to married couples, husbands and wives. He's been encouraging them in their faith. Some of them are undergoing localized persecution and they're facing tough and challenging days. But in chapter 5, at the end of the epistle, he takes time out to write to the leaders in these congregations. And so at chapter 5, verse 1, he writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care and serve as overseers. Let me pause right there and suggest this. If over the centuries all of 1 Peter chapters 1 to 4 had disintegrated from the original manuscripts and we no longer had the originals and no longer had the copies, if we only had the opening words of 1 Peter chapter 5, the first few verses, it would tell us so much about the infant church and it would also tell us so much about Peter. And whenever you come to a passage of Scripture, one of the first questions you ask yourself is this, who is writing and to whom is the author writing? And the first thing we remember is this, it is Peter. But notice how he writes, to the elders among you I write as a fellow elder. Now why is that significant? Why does that have any meaning and value and importance at all? Because of this. Hold that thought and let me remind you of who is writing. This is Simon Peter. And we know him, of course, as Simon Peter, close, personal friend of Jesus himself, leader of the apostolic band, disciple, apostle of two New Testament epistles. And he writes, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. And nowhere in 1 Peter or even in 2 Peter does Peter talk about himself. He doesn't ever write. Now, on one occasion when I was with Jesus, he said this and this and this. That never appears in either of the epistles. He doesn't say, I remember one day when Jesus fed 5,000 and this happened, or I remember him walking on the Sea of Galilee. I was just overwhelmed. None of that appears in his writings. Because over the previous 30 years, Peter understands this, that it is much more important to give exaltation and honor and glory to his Savior than it does to talk about himself. And so Peter, leader of the church in Rome, leader of the apostolic band, is quite comfortable and contented to refer to himself as a fellow elder. That's a remarkable thing. Fellow elder. And of course, it also reminds us of this that Peter was a Presbyterian. 
It's as simple as that. He's an elder. He believes in elders in the congregation, and he believes in elders as holding a leadership position. And I'm slightly saying that with tongue-in-cheek, and as you're smiling back, you get the point. But he believed in a Presbyterian government structure. He believed that elders should be called of God and then appointed into a position of leadership in a congregation. But please also notice this, that throughout the New Testament, in those early days of the infant church, there was never a single leader. Leadership in the New Testament is always in plurality. It's never singular. It's always plural. Now, here at First Pres, we have 42 elders. Some are ruling elders, some are teaching elders. Our teaching elders are our pastors. The ruling elders are, of course, who make up the session along with our pastors. So, we have 42 elders. We have 36 deacons uh, who serve in that capacity, and you see the model for plurality. Now, folks, as over the years, as we have put together leadership, we don't put together leadership just because we think it's a good idea. We put together leadership because there's a biblical model for it. And when we gather together, we rule and we discern and we lead by consensus and cooperation. And one of my biggest frustrations in being a Presbyterian is this, that we have committees for everything. And I honestly don't know how many committees we have as a church. It used to be somewhere around 61, 62. We have kind of trimmed that back in the last few years, but it's certainly 40 plus with all that's going on. But not only is it my biggest frustration, but I think it's the biggest strength we have. It's a frustration in this sense. It seems to take forever to get anything done because it's got to go through committees and motions. And here is why it works well despite the frustration. Because with plurality of leadership, we will take something, pull it apart, then reconstruct it. And I would have to say 95% of the time, it's better as a result of that process. And that's what Peter is doing. He is establishing in those young churches whom he wants to be, a contagious church who are engaged with the living God, a church who are contagious in their worship. He also wants them to be contagious in their leadership because he recognizes that when those who are called and gifted by God work together in consensus and cooperation, it is always good for the leadership and always good for the congregation. So consensus and cooperation, along with all that he's saying, lies right here in these opening verses. And that's why it's important, and that's why it teaches us so much. Now let me bring in another principle. This is where I want to spend the bulk of our remaining time this morning. If Peter has given us a model for contagious leadership, right at the very heart of that model is this that godly leadership comes from a godly relationship. Now, let me say it again. Godly leadership 
is always birthed and then grows towards maturity in a godly relationship. In Mark chapter 1, if you're using a new international version, you will see that chapter 1, verse 1, the subheading is John the Baptist prepares the way. Chapter 1, verse 1. Then at verse 9, you have the baptism and temptation of Jesus. And then at verse 14, you have the calling of the first disciples. And then at verse 21, Jesus drives out an evil spirit. Then at verse 29, Jesus heals many. And then at verse 35, Jesus prays in a solitary place. You have five major incidents in the opening chapter of Mark. And the night, and five major incidents, let me pause there. And then you have that wonderful event where Jesus is in Capernaum and so many people have gathered, there is no room left. And Jesus, the passage tells us, heals many. And the next morning, Peter is looking for Jesus and can't find him. Then he realizes he's off on his own praying, and he runs to him and he says, everyone is looking for you. Please come and heal them. What does Jesus say? He says, I need to spend time with my Father. And that's what's going on. He's there in prayer. When life was most demanding and the challenges against him were complex and difficult at a multiplicity of levels, what does he do? He withdraws from the busyness and activity to pray. And we see right there that biblical principle that godly leadership is birthed and then matured in a godly relationship and we see the relationship between Christ and His Father. And all over the New Testament, and in fact throughout the Scriptures, again and again you see the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But remember who was it that went looking for Him? It was Peter. And Peter doesn't forget that lesson, so much so that 30 years later, when he's writing to the leadership in these churches scattered around Asia Minor, in essence, he's reminding them that godly leadership comes from a godly relationship. Primary, right at the heart of what it means to be godly in leadership. Now, turn back to 1 Peter chapter 5. Now notice what Peter says next. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder with incredible humility, he writes those words. Then he says, as a witness of Christ's suffering and one who also will share in his glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. And then Peter takes it further. Notice what he writes. Not because you must, but because you are willing. Now let me pause for a second. Whenever I have been in this spectacular position of looking for elders and deacons and people to take up uh, positions within the life of a congregation, and I have phoned someone and said, this and this and this is happening, I would like you to prayerfully consider being an elder, being a deacon, being the chair of this committee or that committee, or we need help in this area. 
almost 85% of the time, the person on the phone will say this, Richard, I think you've made a mistake. I'm not the person for that job. And whenever I hear that, I think, Father, thank you. That's exactly who I need for this job. Because this individual is not saying, of course, I have all the gifts and the talents, and sure, I can do that. They're doing the very opposite. They are saying, I'm not sure I'm able to do that job or even capable of it. And then they'll say, well, can I come and talk to you first? I say, of course. And in the course of that conversation, it becomes pretty clear that God is calling them and shaping and fashioning them, and they then sign up and are willing to serve. And that's what Peter is talking about here. Not because you must, but because you are willing. And then he takes it a step further. And he goes on, now let me jump on down verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And he's talking of the joy and thrill of service and the ultimate reward. But that's not where I want to finish this morning because we've only got a few minutes left and I want to finish with focusing on verse 7. Because verse 7 is one of those verses from 1 Peter that has been memorized by countless generations over the millennia. And look at it this morning. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. Let me pause for a second and say this. Now, when Peter was saying, I want you to be a shepherd of God's flock, he's not saying, I want you to be the COO, the chief operations officer of the flock. That's not his model. That's a good model and a healthy model, but it's not the biblical model that's here. Neither is he saying, I want you to be like a football coach, an athletic model. That's not what's used here either. Nor is he talking about being a commander of troops. It's not a military motif, but it's a shepherd, someone who loves and shows care and concern willing to get alongside. Be shepherds of God's flock. Be a calming and stabilizing influence. Over the years in ministry and working with all sorts of groups and seminars and workshops, I've heard I don't know how many definitions of leadership, most of them helpful and insightful. I've jotted them down and used them from time to time. But the one I keep coming back to again and again and again is this. When everything else is stripped away, a leader is someone who has influence. Let me say it again. It's fairly straightforward, but it's more significant than it first appears. A leader is someone who has influence. And most of us have influence with our family members, brothers and sisters, children, grandchildren. Some of us may have influence in our neighborhood. We may be part of a neighborhood group. Others of us have influence in our place of work. But even if none of that applies to you, let me encourage you to think of the place where you have leadership more than anyone else. And it's here. You 
always have a position of leadership when it comes to influencing yourself. That's where leadership starts. You influence yourself. And if you're finding yourself running harder and harder and harder and find it hard to find that time to intentionally have intimacy with him, here is a helpful model. Three words. Here they come. Reassess, refocus, and redirect. If you're taking notes this morning, get it down. You may want to put it in the margin of your Bible. Godly leadership comes from a godly relationship And when you influence yourself, that's when the relationship increases. And it increases on the basis of reassess, refocus, and redirect. Because when I get that time to pray, and I open up the Scriptures, and I am engaging with God alone in that very intimate sense, I know this, that spending time in the Scriptures and in prayer, it causes me to reassess the priorities and values in my life. Prayer causes us to reassess. And he pulls me back to those very basic things of my relationship with him and my love for him. And then once that relationship is reconnected, it then flows out to my relationship with Ruth and Michael and family and friends and so on. So it causes me to reassess. And then it causes me to refocus and refocus on specific things, areas of my life that need to change, areas that I need to refocus in. Be specific. Ask the tough questions. What is going on here? How can it be better? How do I make it more of a godly focus than a Richard focus? So reassess, refocus, and this is the tough one. The tough one's always at the end. We redirect. Redirect. Father, where are the priorities? What do I need to let go? Where do I need to refocus? And how do I redirect? Well, it comes in verse 7. And verse 7 has stood the test of time down through the centuries because any individual who's after a godly relationship will always take this principle and make it a reality in our lives because first and foremost in our relationship with him, what do we do? We cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Not just a little. You don't let it go a little and then pull it back. You hand them over and say, Father, help me this week to reassess, refocus, and then redirect when I cast all my anxieties on you. That's where godly leadership begins because godly leadership is birthed and matured in a godly relationship. May it be so for us this week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these verses before us this morning. It constantly surprises us that when we think of the messiness and the busyness of our lives, that you speak to us from your word again. 
Father, we fully recognize this morning that as individuals, we have significant influence in our own lives. Father, help us please this week to cast all of our anxieties on you because you care for us. Father, help us to put them down and leave them with you and to live the life that you have called us to. Father, hear our prayers, for we bring them to you in and through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Have you missed a Sunday? Go to our website to watch previous broadcasts, download a podcast, or purchase a CD or DVD. And don't forget to connect with First Press by liking us on Facebook and Twitter, signing up to receive emails, or requesting prayer online.